What a Sunday. What a Sunday so far. I'm going to tell you, next Sunday is going to be even better. Uh, at least for me, because <laughs> uh, Joanne is going to get an award, a Lifetime Achievement Award or something. Is that, no, she's too young to get a Lifetime Achievement Award, but she is getting an award uh, through Cal Poly Pomona, her workplace in Las Vegas. Uh, so I get to be her arm candy, you know. Uh, trophy husband, it's <laughs> the best part. <laughs> So I'll be away, but don't worry. The next Sunday will be even better here, too, because we will have Dr. Jeff Leo speaking. He will be continuing the series. If you don't know Dr. Jeff Leo, he's a pastor. As you, you know, he was our former pastor. He was my pastor when he was attending, when I was attending here before. And he is, uh, uh, he is a scholar, fuller PhD, like me, uh, even though we have di different theoretical persuasions and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but he is also a theologian, a former theologian with a theologian in his title. He's the director of theological formation of this inter-varsity Christian fellowship, their national level. He helps them form the way they understand the scripture and form their theology, particularly as they stepped into the future. So it is such a privilege, such a privilege to have people like them, in the, like, like Jeff in the pew, and more importantly, it's not just about, I've seen many pastors, theologians, and scholars, and all that. I don't really trust them a lot, but <laughs> there's something that I really like about Jeff, and probably you don't know much about, is that he is a hardcore evangelist. You know, he used to go to this, uh, you know, bars in old Pasadena and do alpha in the bar, not in the church. You know, so that's a kind of, I, I always trust an evangelist with a heart and passion for Christ. And I'm so grateful that uh, Dr. Jeff and Lisa and their amazing children, um, uh, Jesse and Emma, they are all part of this church. And so Jeff will be taking us to the next, uh, uh, the pit stop of this Exodus journey where they appoint the new leader, where Moses gives, transitions his power to Joshua. So that, that's the next phase in this journey. Um, talking about transitions, uh, next Sunday, we are celebrating the ministry of Dr. Chuck, and Chuck Hunt and Janine Smith. So I want all of you to be here, and we are going to celebrate them. And after the service, we are going to be meeting at the, uh, uh, the, the Sky Room, and we are going to have some refreshment, uh, some memories of how they blessed us, and how they will continue to bless us in so many ways with the imprints, the footprints they have had here. Because I won't be here next Sunday, I get to go first, okay? I'm going to take a couple minutes to, uh, in, in advance, that some of my memories of them, working with them. Um, I remember three years ago when I came on staff, and one of the best things that I, de I did uh, was, uh, some of you remember, this is pre-COVID, just before COVID happened, uh, you know, we did something called neighborhood missional communities. So we formed, uh, you know, identified people based on different uh, uh, neighborhoods where they live in. And you remember, we all got some wristband of different colors. And that was a radical thing to do. We, I remember having this discussion in the leadership ministry team meeting and said, we will cross the balcony, make them come here and ask people to move around and identify their neighborhood. Everybody was skeptic. 
oh my goodness, we don't cross the balcony because those people will revolt, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, no, but we will try this. And so it was, it was such a radical step to do, but I remember Janine was the real reason that, that happened because everybody was skeptic. Nobody really said no, but Janine said, Matthew, let's go for it. And even though I got the credit because I initiated the idea, it was Janine actually executed it. And so far to this day, that is the most beautiful memory that I have at Lake Avenue Church. All of us walking around the sanctuary and identifying our neighborhood, getting different color uh, wristbands. So that was great. And Dr. Chuck Hunt, as you probably know, he's that cool dude you see on the stage. That's, it. That's who he is in his real life too. And uh, the last few months, uh, unfortunately, we had a lot of staff transitions, particularly in the family ministries department. Hardly any of them were planned. Hardly any of them were anticipated. So I always worried for Chuck. And so one of in a one-on-one -on -one meeting, I said, "Chuck, are you okay? Are you okay?" I would say. Oh, I'm cool. I'm cool, Matthew. Don't worry. Don't worry. And I was worried for him. So can, can I get more staffing there? Can I ask more people? No, don't worry. I'll, I'm cool. I'm cool. So the way he handled was such a, uh, in a fearless way, you know, calm and collected. And if you didn't see him for the last few weeks, because he was running around there and basically taking care of that department uh, almost all on his shoulder. So I just, uh, it's just an incredible privilege to work with uh, people like that. Uh, in, in, in my own ministry journey. And they both uh, uh, said that they would love to continue to be part of our journey in some way. They might come back again. It will be lovely to have continue that fellowship again. Um, and unfortunately, and this is the only Sunday which was available for all, all of them, November 13. I said, can you change that Sunday, uh, please? But no, that was the only Sunday was available for them. And unfortunately, the award ceremonies cannot be postponed that way. Uh, so <laughs> I had planned this way in advance. I love them. I love all of you, but I'm not going to risk my marriage for any of you, okay? <laughs> so <laughs> so let, let's stand for the reading of the word. <laughs> Today's reading comes from Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 onwards. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. You're talking about manna, we loathe this miserable food. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit, by, bit any man, 
When he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. The next reading comes from John chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. We are in the book of Numbers. Interestingly enough, the book of Numbers, the original Hebrew title is a Hebrew word. I think it is called Bamidbar. I have that word for you. It literally means in the wilderness. That's what it means, in the wilderness. So that's the original title in the Torah for the book of Numbers. But whoever translated the Bible thought it's not really a cool title <laughs> in the English or other language. I think it started from Greek, I guess. Uh, you can take that away. Um, so basically, we called it Numbers. It became Numbers, but it originally it's in the wilderness. Because the, the whole book of Numbers is tracking along with the Israelites following the cloud on that journey, but at this point, as you know, you know, if you were here last week, or at least you heard the sermon last week, at this point in their journey, they are literally dead men walking, because there is no future. God very clearly proclaimed that you lost this generation. None of you, except those two people who believed the promise, which is Joshua and Caleb are going to enter the promised land. So there is another 38 years left in their journey and they're just wandering in the wilderness. And that's the story of the numbers, a significant part of it. The tragic consequence of that decision they made not to trust the promise of the Lord, and they ended up circling in the wilderness for years and years. Now, in the book of Numbers, when you read, there are two senses being taken. That's another reason it is titled Numbers, at least in English, because there are, it's all about senses. Like, you know, they are actually taking, giving account of people. So there are two senses in the book of Numbers. The first one is chapter 1, verses, verse 46. And the other one, chapter 26, verse 41, 51. So both this, you will see, they have accounted for how many people are on this journey. And the first one is around 600,000 people. And the second one is also around 600,000 people. But they are completely different people. The first 600,000 people perished in that wilderness. But a new 600,000 people emerged in that journey. And when you read the book of Numbers, it's very, especially for us, uh, you know, in the, in the, uh, from, from our context, when we read the book of Numbers, it is not, there are a lot of time lapse, even though it is written kind of chronologically, there is a big time lapse between each, each incident. For example, when you read the book of Numbers chapter 19, 
And then you flip to chapter 20, you just flip the page from chapter 90 into chapter 20, but actually there is a time lap of almost 37 years between that, between chapter 19 and chapter 20. So you thought, you, you know, oh, this happened, this happened, no. These things happen in different time zone, time, uh, time frames. Does that make sense? So according to the scholars, and there are different disputes, Numbers chapter 1 to 14 were written sometime around the first one to two years of the Exodus journey. And then 15 to 19, kind of undated, we are exactly not sure the dating of that chapters. And to chapter 20 onwards, all the way to the end, is written towards the end of the Exodus journey. That is, we are talking about 30, year 38, year 39, and closer to year 40, somewhere around that. So I want you to understand the time lapse between all of this. Now, coming back to the story, this is a very strange story, not only in the Exodus journey, the whole of the Bible, uh, where, so as you know, the context of it, I believe you already got it, and Israelites getting tired after, you know, so many years of journey, they are getting tired of the manna. Who can stand this miserable food? That's what they're talking about. You know, the, the manna from heaven is getting miserable for them, you know, the the nature of human beings. And we, it happens to us too, right? You know, anyway, I don't want to get into it. But the point is, at that point, God, God sort of punishes them, at least according to the narrative. There are these fiery serpents coming along and they're biting people. They are dying instantly. And so they cry out to God and they realize the mistake and they say, we need a cure from the snake bite. So I assume if I'm God, thankfully I'm not, uh, what would you do? Why can't you kill all the serpents? That's what I, should, I would do if I'm God. Okay, there is fiery serpents and they are creating problem. They are crying out to God. If I'm God, okay, let them all die. Kill them. That's, that's an easy solution, right? That's, the, that's an easy solution. Or at least make some kind of... Uh, I don't know, medicine, some kind of a magic portion for people to drink, <laughs> you know, when they have snake bite and then they get cured. These kind of things make sense that logically that's the way uh, I would approach it and I'm pretty sure most of you would approach it. But the strange thing is God asked Moses to create another fiery serpent and asked the people who are bitten by the fiery serpent to look at this bigger fiery serpent when they get bitten. I don't know if this is me, but if I, God forbid, if I'm ever bitten by a snake, and the last thing I want to look at is another snake. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, you know, when I was a kid, I was, uh, I think, four or five years old, vague memories. Uh, my neighbor had a turkey, turkey, you know, uh, the ugliest animal, uh, the ugliest bird I have ever seen. It was tall, big, and that turkey literally hated me. And the turkey will follow me, all, you know, all my friends, will, there was something about me that turkey didn't like. Whenever, I, whenever the turkey sees me, it will chase me. And I run, and it's kind of nightmare. I get, I, get, I get nightmare even now sometime, because it's a traumatic memory I carry from, 
childhood. Because of that, I hate turkey meat. <laughs> I, I don't just hate it, I detest turkey, turkey, turkey meat. And, and because of that, don't get me bad, I don't like Thanksgiving season. And, <laughs> and me coming from Canada, we have to celebrate two Thanksgiving. In October, we have Canadian Thanksgiving with a big turkey over there. Then we have the American Thanksgiving coming right up with another turkey over there. Actually, when, when I get invited to the Thanksgiving meals by someone, I have given clear orders not to make Thanksgiving in our house. There are no turkey in our house. And we just made a little exception this time for our daughter who came from Canada because they're Canadian Thanksgiving, we couldn't go anywhere. So anyway, but having said that, the only thing oh, I, I, I eat from a Thanksgiving table is cranberry sauce. I can have two plates of it, but anyway. The point, <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is, that what God did there was God created a spectacle, a public display, not a magic portion, not an instant cure, and he created a spectacle and lifted it on a pole and said, you are going to be redeemed, you are going to be healed by faith. Not by anything you do, not by anything you touch. All I need, if you are bitten by a snake, I want you to look at the spectacle that I have created and being lifted on the pole. Now the irony of the story is that as the story goes along, as the years progresses, this very cure that God created and give, gave to them this bronze serpent that literally healed them from snake bites came back to bite them. And that bite was harder than the real fiery serpents. Okay, you wonder what I'm talking about. Let me read another verse here. Second Kings chapter 18, verse four. Now this is almost 700 years after the Exodus journey. Israel is now a big nation here we have a king named Hezekiah. During this time, this is what happens. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incenses to it, and it was called Nehushtan. Now you see what happened? God gave them a medium through which he can channel his healing power. And they made an idol out of it. When the time of his ministry was done, they didn't abandon it. They carried it and they attributed magical powers to this bronze serpent, and they made an idol, and they started worshiping it. Now this is a real danger that we often see in contemporary in our life too. What once healed us 
makes us sick. What was once a blessing becomes a curse. It could be our traditions, it could be our ideologies, it could be a book that helped, or it could be a person that helped. And I'm always aware of the danger, especially as a pastor ministering to the people in a contemporary America where there is a celebrity culture among pastors. There is this increasing tendency in our culture and Christian circle to idolize a pastor. And I'm aware of that. I'm, I myself was like that because in a church circle, there is always emotional entanglement. I used to be where you are. I am upset when, you know, I, I, I emotionally get connected to a pastor and then, then, then when something happens to that pastor, that I feel the pain and I want to react and that's very human and that's very natural. There is nothing wrong with that. But when I stand here, when I stand here, I am worried. I am worried about myself. It's funny, in the fireside chat uh, last uh, Wednesday, Somebody asked a question. They said, uh, <laughs> yes or no question. Said, oh, okay, this is something to trap me. This is yes or no. But the question was, Pastor Matthew, do you know you are loved by the congregation? I was like, oh, that was so sweet. <laughs> but I hesitated to answer that. Believe me, I'm not humble. I'm nowhere near humble, even though this, if, if you feel that I'm very humble, it's a facade. <laughs> but I like to be loved. I like to be liked. I like to be adored. I like to be appreciated. But at that brief moment, I just got scared. At what point am I becoming a Nehushtan? <laughs> A bronze serpent who conveyed the medium, became a medium of God's power, immediately can become an idol. And there's a thin line, there's a blurry line that I don't want to cross. And I know that was an innocent question and they wanted to make it, there's nothing wrong with that. Even then, sometime, you know, even when you clap, when I say something, when I preach, when you clap, I immediately tend to shrink. Oh my goodness, am I doing something wrong when you clap? <laughs> Generally, that's, you know, you appreciate, but then when you appreciate that, I feel there is something wrong about what I said. That's my immediate, maybe my parents did something to me psychologically, <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> but I think it's a good thing from here. From there, it's okay. I understand. I understand. If you want to love me, go ahead. <laughs> if you want to appreciate me, go ahead. But I want to be very, very, very careful of being a Nehoshtan. Once I might have been used as a part of healing you, but I don't want to be the person who make you sick ever. See, I want all of us today to do an account of, clear of the attics, which are the Nehushtans dusting in your attic? I want you to check. Your attic, your attic is head, right? Like your mind. Clear off, clear off the, clear off the attic and see 
What are some of these idols you are still carrying? God gave you, whether it's a book, whether it's a person, whether it's a, whether it's a musical instrument, or whether it's, whether it's a pastor, it doesn't matter. For a certain time period, for God to channel his power, it is not the medium, but it is the messenger, which is actually the message that is coming through that person. That is what is important. So I, I, I recommend that we all do an attic cleaning and dust off the idols that we are still carrying on. Who is or what is our Nehushtan? Now, I want you to know that the actual bronze serpent which was lifted on that pole that day was a symbol. That's why God didn't create a magic portion. God didn't create, you know, killing the serpent. God wanted them to know that I am going to heal you by your faith and faith alone. You don't have to touch anything. It is not an object of worship. It's not an object of healing. All I want you to look and you see the promise of a spectacle I am about to make for the whole wide world. And we that mystery was revealed in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. It says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, the Son of Man, be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Now the mystery is cleared. The bronze serpent that Moses lifted on the desert was a symbol that pointed to the Son of Man who was about to be lifted on the pole for the salvation, not only for the Israelites, for the whole wide world, so that anyone being bitten by the snake, the serpent that was in the garden, and you look at him and you will be healed instantly by faith. And that was a fundamental theological precept of the Bible. And that's the mystery that was revealed to them. The Son of Man be lifted on the pole. Isn't it wonderful that the context of the golden verse, the golden verse of the Bible, you all know, John chapter 316, we talk about John chapter 316. For God so loved the world, you know, then you know the rest of it, that he gave his only begotten son, we have all memorized it. But did you know that actually is spoken in the context of the story we are talking about today? We are actually doing an injustice to that golden verse when you just extract verse 16. It's actually, you have to read 3, 14, 15, and 16. You cannot just pick and your favorite verse and make it golden verse too. 14 and 15 are important part of that. That is the context in which the golden verse is. Whenever the golden verse is invoked, you are automatically referring to the story of Moses lifting up the Son of Man. <laughs> Yeah, it was a bronze serpent, but Moses is giving them and pointing them to the cosmic, eternal promise which was made in, you remember? In the Garden of Eden. <laughs> That's when you really see the serpent for the first time. Don't you remember? Before the serpent was in the desert, was he in the garden. <laughs> 
He was slithering into the garden and tempting the primordial human beings, Adam and Eve. And you know the story. You know what happened. And when the fall happened, when the disaster happened, and God made them a promise. This is from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 says this. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. So this is the Lord speaking to the serpent. The Lord cursing the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, the Lord curses the serpent saying that, I am going to put enmity between your seed and her seed. And the seed of a woman will crush the head of the serpent. This is the promise that was made in the Garden of Eden. I'll say that one more time. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That was the promise from time immemorial in the Garden of Eden. There is only one human being who ever lived in the planet who can be called the seed of a woman. We are all part of seed of a man and a woman. There is only one man, there is only one human being who ever lived on this planet who is totally the seed of the woman. And he, he alone can crush the head of the enemy. And what happened on the cross was the fruition and the fulfillment of that cosmic prophecy. And what you see on the cross is not a tragedy. It is a triumph where the seed of the woman is crushing the head of the serpent. And the cross is showing us here is the ultimate healing for all the snake bite. And the world is drugged up in the snake poison. The world is not thinking straight anymore. It is bitten by the enemy. But the anti-venom is already created on the cross. And you know that anti-venom comes from the snake venom itself. That's what happened on the cross. That's where God kind of tricked the enemy into creating this anti-venom, sucked out his venom. I remember when I was, uh, I was in school and, and one of my you know, friends got bitten by a snake. It was a dangerous snake. There was another friend who jumped into action. I still remember him. Basically, you, do, you know how do you the first, do first aid? He cut the wound open and he started sucking up his blood and he just, he will suck up the blood. I can still see that in my mind. Suck the blood and spit it out. Suck the blood and spit it out. And finally, this boy saved his friend by doing that. He sucked the venom out of his friend. Now the picture I see on the cross is not Jesus sucking the venom out of us, but Jesus sucking the venom out of the serpent itself. We can only suck the venom out of people, but Jesus can suck the venom out of the serpent. And that's exactly what is happening on the cross. When the Son of Man who is lifted on the pole, who is 
us from our side is bleeding to death, but actually he is killing the enemy. The cross is actually a weapon of aggression by the Lord where he scratched the head of the enemy. One of my friends recently forwarded an article to me which was very interesting about making antivenom or cure for uh, rattle, rattlesnakes. A company in UK, they are, this is what they're doing. There is a specific kind of sheep in south, southern Australia, and they are chosen to be that medium to, reveal, to, to create antivenom. So they inject snake poison, rattlesnake poison into this sheep, 2,000 at a time, you know, that's their sampling, and then this sheep will not die because the sheep has the capacity to withstand it. It makes them sick, but it won't die. But from their blood of the sheep, they create antivenom for the rattlesnake poison. And I thought, wow, what a metaphor. <laughs> what a metaphor. Here is the sheep and the, you know, like John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus took the venom on the cross, but it didn't kill him. It didn't kill him. It, it, he created anti-venom through that death and resurrection process. He came back. He came back with the promise of eternal life, and he is giving us anti-venom to say that, here you go, and no snake in the world is going to bite you, only if you look at the one who is lifted on the pole. That is all you need to do. There is no physical things required. There is no object to be touched. There is no medium of worship. There is no person who need to lay their hands on you, but all you to do, to do is to look at the one who is lifted on the pole and the enemy is defeated. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your sting, oh serpent? It is gone, it is out, and God has redeemed us. God has called us into an eternal new life. All that the enemy has now is, you know, it's an interesting twist in the story is that God didn't kill the enemy, right? And the, the promise is, it will crush the head of the serpent. The tail is still active. Only the enemy lost his head, but he still has his tail. Exactly like, like the rattlesnake. He's still rattling it. <laughs> he's still rattling his tail. That's what he's trying to do. And he is trying to scare you and sometimes attract you to his bite. But here is the anti-venom. Here, right here on the table. And this is the first Sunday, Communion Sunday. And uh, I want you to look at this for a brief moment before we take the communion. What happened on the cross? See, communion is, is not just a celebration. It is a celebration, but it is. But it is something more than that. Communion is not just about refreshing and renewal and all that. It is something more than that. Communion is the actual symbol of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the enemy and giving us a triumphant Christian life, an invitation into, into, into that eternal life. And I want you to look at it just like the Israelites looked at that bronze serpent. It's a symbol. This is a symbol. That's all it is. 
And I kept it as a symbol. I'm still going to join you taking this because I wanted to take communion with you. Hopefully one day we can, re we can go back to the actual days where we can all take the other communion. But it doesn't really matter. This is all a symbol. But I wanted to look at it because, you know, in some way, in some way, I think it is, you know, the psychologist would say an exposure therapy. You know, the exposure therapy is where when, when you have a phobia about something, you will, you will be introduced to the same thing you fear. And actually, I believe in the desert, what God did was kind of an exposure therapy. And he wanted them to look at the very thing they fear, the very thing that they are afraid of. And that, today when I look at, when you look at it, I want you to see the horror of sin on the cross. And I want you to see the horror of sin that is hidden in the, in the fabric of your spiritual, your, your being. We all are sinners. And the proclivity to the sin is creeping in our, in, in our being. And the slithering serpent is hiding in the attic. And I want you to look at the horror of the sin. And then I want you to remember the one who is lifted on the pole. And all you need to do is just believe it and receive it. And if you have never accepted Jesus, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I would really like to say a prayer. And I would really like to experience the joy that the Christians have. And I, I really want to make it a celebration in a way that it really takes us to the renewed and refreshed life, but always through the spectacle, the greatest spectacle that has ever see, happened in the whole world. That happened on the cross. On the day, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he said, here is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's have this together. The same night, he took the cup, raised it up, and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. As and when you partake from it, do this in remembrance of me. Let's drink this together. Let's pray. Lord, we live in Bamidbar, in the wilderness. Not the wilderness of Sinai Peninsula, it's the wilderness of the land in which we live, which is devoid of the unction from the Holy Spirit. A world without God is worse than desert. Lord, our country is inching into disaster on an everyday basis. And the slithering serpent, even though he doesn't have head, is creeping into our institutions, our churches, individuals. 
Lord, we surrender today. We are lifting you on the pole here at Lake Avenue Church. No one, no pastor, no political leader, no ideology will be lifted on 393 Lake Avenue Church. The one who is lifted on the pole, may you be the cure, may you be our life, may you be our celebration. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.